Do you need help protecting your finances as you enter retirement? David Dickens of KC Financial Advisors has got you covered. Welcome to the Cover Your Assets KC podcast. Welcome to another edition of the Cover Your Assets KC podcast. Walter Storholt here alongside David Dickens, President Wealth Advisor at KC Financial Advisors. Serving you in the Kansas City area with an office right there in Overland Park, but you can find us worldwide to make it sound exciting at CoverYourAssetsKC.com. We're going to be talking about jargon on today's show, and in particular, advisor designations and definitions. What do all of those letters or numbers terms, that kind of stuff, mean after an advisor's name or after the business's name in the financial industry. Well, we're going to, without getting too lost in the weeds, going to try and make some sense of all of these different designations and things like that that are out there, David. And I think this will be kind of fun to help the average investor, the average saver, sort of understand like what's important and what isn't important when it comes to designations and that sort of thing. That will be our goal for today because there's a, there's a bunch of them out there. And uh, it all, it's an entire industry that's been built around creating designations for people. So we'll try to unpack some of that and see what we got. And this isn't unique to the financial advisor industry necessarily. I mean, there's, you know, you can look at the, the field of medicine and there's all sorts of different designations and levels of training and types of care providers and that sort of thing. So in some ways, it's a little bit similar to that. But there may be a few even more uh, designations in the financial world <laughs> to sort through. Um, and here's part of the problem. It does seem like anybody can just sort of call themselves that very blanket term of financial advisor. Like that that's that's the problem. I mean, you really don't need much to call yourself a financial advisor. And so then that's given rise to I think all these other different ways to sort of differentiate yourself. So how do you sort through all those different levels of qualification? What do these things mean? Uh, well, on this episode we're going to explain some of the more common designations you'll encounter on your financial planning journey and hopefully that'll help you make some sense of it all. So David, I'm going to just pick one to start with here. Um and it's uh it's I AR. You'll see some folks listed as an IAR, but you might also see something that's promoted or listed as an RIA. So just switching the letters around a little bit there. Is there an easy way to explain the difference in those designations or the meanings behind those those terms? I think there's an easy way, so I'm okay, gonna launch perfect. it. I'll launch it and see what happens. An RIA, a registered investment advisor, is a person or a firm most Oftentimes, it's a firm that has uh, a bunch of IARs in it, but a registered registered investment advisory firm is registered with either the SEC or the state that they operate in, and that is just dependent upon how many assets under management that they have. So smaller RIAs register with the state, and once you get over $100 million, you're required to, to um, register with the SEC, but a lot of smaller Registered investment advisory firms do register with the SEC. So uh, an IAR is merely an investment advisor representative. So a representative of an RIA firm. This is basically this is the difference between an RIA and a, and a brokerage firm is really what we're talking about here. You're either an investment advisor firm or a brokerage firm. And so maybe we'll talk a little bit about brokerage designations later. But a, a registered investment advisory firm, an RIA, has a the key things are they have a fiduciary responsibility to give investment advice that's in their client's best interest, not just suitable for the client, 
but it has to be in, in the client's best interest. And there are a lot of disclosures that go along with being in a, an RIA, an investment advisory firm. You have to tell the SEC, and since it's public document, you have to tell everybody what your investment style is, how much you have in asset center management, what your fee structure is. Do you have any disciplinary actions against you, which is super important to know? Do you have any current or potential conflicts of interest in the way you run your business? So RIA, Registered Investment Advisory Firm, is the kind of the the name that you would put on someone or a firm that's acting as a fiduciary. Okay, perfect. So RIA can also be sort of like the shell that holds the IARs within it. Exactly. And that's mostly what you have are, are firms that are registered as RIAs and not necessarily people. If you're a sole practitioner uh, and you register your yourself as an RIA, that can be done, but it's way more common to have the firm registered as the RIA. So you might hear an advisor say, I am my own RIA, perhaps, but it, it just means that their firm is is supplying that designation or that that, that coverage, so to speak. Exactly. Okay, perfect. All right, very good. All right, now the next batch of designations I know has to do with then like the individual. And you're going to hear C's. C's show up a lot (laughs) in these designations, David. So uh, sometimes the C will stand for chartered, maybe certified, maybe consultant, maybe credited, maybe 15 other words that I didn't have the chance to think of as we were pulling together this conversation. But I know that those are at least a couple of them. Um, C's show up pretty much in a bunch of different designations. So can you explain some of the difference between maybe the more common designations? Like I know CFP, CFA, uh, C, little h, FC, uh, and RICP, and uh, you can see the alphabet soup starts to unfold from there. <laughs> right. So, so with that, Google actually does a fantastic job. If um, if you're looking at a person, if you meet with a person and they have some initials behind their name, Google, frankly, does a really good job of of explaining what the exams are. How difficult was it to get? Uh, kind of what you want to know is how difficult was it for this person to get that designation. And what does it tell me about the, their knowledge base and their experience base? Because if I'm handing over 100,000 or a million or 10 million to this person to work with, I'd like to know that they actually know what they're doing right. and they're not just selling me product. So take it from the kind of the oldest to the youngest, the CFA, that happens to be what I have. It was born in 1963. And what it requires is three separate exams that can only be taken annually. And it covers you know, wealth planning and portfolio management and fixed income and economics, corporate finance, that kind of thing. Investopedia, something you would Google, would tell you that it's kind of the gold standard of in the investment business. It has a very low pass rate. Over the last 10 years, the number of people that have sat for this exam and finished all three years of you know each of those three exams is only 13%. So it weeds out a whole lot of people pretty fast. Boy, that's that, worse than a college biology <laughs> or chemistry class. My goodness. Way worse. Since 1963, the pass rate is about 16%. So it's not like it's gotten real a lot tougher over the, yeah. over the most recent decade. It's just always been very difficult. And the goal is 
to make sure that it's a super rigorous designation. Uh, CFP was born in 1972, about 10 years after the CFA. And it really covers uh, insurance planning and tax planning and retirement planning, uh, estate planning. It is a really good designation and, and it includes a comprehensive exam at the end of these six modules that you have to sit through. And a lot of these are done, you can do them online, but the coursework is typically done uh, through a university or some sort of college that has been set up. And it's a really good rigorous examination process that takes a while to get. And the comprehensive exam, I think at the end is super good. The, uh, so that's a certified financial planner, CFP. So again, Chartered Financial Analyst is CFA. Certified Financial Planner is the CFP. 10 years after the CFP was created, in 1982, the um, Chartered Financial Consultants. So that was that CHFC that you mentioned. And basically, it was created as a competitor to the CFP. Somebody said, I used to know who created that. It might have been in the insurance industry. They created that to say, you know what? These CFP guys have a lot of people flocking to their door. We should do a competing <laughs> designation, which there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. The curriculum is almost the same. The only difference that I know of is it doesn't have a comprehensive exam at the end. It just has uh, an exam at each of the six pieces. Ah, so okay. so that's, a, that's a designation that takes a while to get as well. And you have to know a lot about a lot of topics that people getting close to retirement want you to know about. So that's a perfectly good one too. The last one that you mentioned is uh, the RICP, and uh, that is pretty new, and it's about 10 years old. And that is a retirement income certified professional. So that's a little bit of a tortured uh, slamming together of words, but basically what it does is it's, it's only a three-course curriculum, so a lot shorter. And it basically focuses in on the retirement income process, strategies and solutions for generating retirement income. So what that could be is a bolt on, rarely would you see somebody who just had the RICP. Mostly what you'd have is somebody with a CFP and they would bolt on an RICP to to that existing knowledge they had. So that's kind of the, the rundown. There are more but what you want to know as an investor is how rigorous was the course of study and how rigorous was the testing. And frankly, if 90% if of the people that take it pass it, that might say something about how rigorous the testing is. Perfect. And and just as like a warning to folks, we talked about some, you know, relatively uh, legitimate uh, designations over the last couple of minutes here, as you could hear about some of the uh, the CFP, the CFA, the CHFC um, that require that that testing, those coursework. But there are some out there if you Google some different designations where, David, I don't think I'm off base in saying you could just take like a quick weekend online class and then boom, slap on a designation on the, the tail end of your name or something to that effect. Or you, you pay, you know, X amount of dollars and go to a weekend um, conference and, you know, boom, you get your you get your designation that you can add on. So there are some of those kinds of things floating out there. There are. And just to double back on this discussion that we had earlier about RIAs, Registered Investment Advisory Firms, the SEC has clamped down on the use of registered 
people that are registered with the SEC can't just flip out some of these designations. The ones that we talked about are all high level. But as you mentioned, there are a lot of more fly-by-night, go-to-a-weekend-seminar thing. And that's where the SEC has really clamped down. If you're going to be registered with us, they say, you can only display the more rigorous credentials. Fantastic. That certainly helps a little bit. All right, a little bit different direction. So it's not so much designations, but qualifications also come in a little bit different form as I will see stuff all the time, David, that has the word series in it. Series 65, Series 6, Series 7, things like that. Um, There's a whole series of terms that have the word series in them, if you will. Uh, so, so what does it mean if we see that promoted as part of uh, an advisor's education and designations? So those designations almost all, they just refer to FINRA exams. And so um, FINRA is the regulatory body over the brokerage industry, basically. And they also do, so one of these exams is the Series 65 exam, which happens to be for investment advisors only. So the main ones that, that somebody is going to see are usually Series 6, Series 7 and 63, which go together, Series 65. Those are the main ones that, that individuals are going to see that their broker or advisor might have. So real quickly, let's unpack those. Series 6 has to do with selling mutual funds. And it's a it's a two-hour exam. It's, it's, it's a relatively low bar, but you have to know a lot about mutual funds in order to sell them. And so to be registered to sell them, you have to have a Series 6. Series 7 and 63 are those, uh, uh, makes you a general securities representative. It allows you to legally sell securities. Almost always, uh, basically always, within a brokerage firm. Not a registered investment advisory firm, but a brokerage firm. The difference there, we really didn't necessarily talk about the difference there, but the difference between a brokerage firm and an advisory firm is that you have a different level of responsibility to your customer or client. And so I mentioned that you have um, the highest standard is being a fiduciary at an RIA. That's where you have to have it. Anything that you advise on has to be in the client's best interest. Whereas if you're a broker, it just has to be generally suitable for a person like the person you're talking to. So it's a much lower bar. But that's what a Series 7 and 63 does, is it it assures you that the person you're talking to about buying a security has a pretty high level of knowledge about how the securities business works, how stocks and bonds work. And that is a very rigorous six-hour exam uh, that takes to get that. A Series 65 is what an investment advisor at an RIA firm would have to have in order to advise clients. I won't even mention a Series 66, which is a kind of a combination of those two. So what you want to know is, in order to legally do this business, you've got to have some sort of uh, designation by some sort of regulatory body. And if you don't, then that's where the customer has to start asking some relatively basic questions like, (laughs) what regulatory authority do you answer to? And if they say the SEC, you know they're a fiduciary. If they say FINRA, you know that they're a broker. 
interesting and uh, helpful to get some more perspective. And I know we've had some blend over too here between talking about you know insurance world versus um, the investing world too. And we don't have to necessarily go that deep into this conversation today, as I'm sure we could probably do an entire series if we wanted to go that deep into all these different nuances and levels of you know who and how can people call themselves financial advisors. But I wanted to approach one more angle at least here, David. Most of what we've talked about here is like, you know, education and testing outside of the schooling framework. So what about college degrees? Does a financial advisor I want to work with really need to have a degree in economics or an MBA or some sort of similar, uh, you know, college education to, you know, be successful and and someone worth, you know, working with with my money and and retirement dollars? That's certainly arguable. My position is that the advisor you're working with you would want them to have a significantly broad understanding of how financial markets and how money works. And I'm not saying you can't pick that up um, along the way, but you learn a whole lot about that um, in with at least an undergrad because you have to understand economics because you're going to have to have an economics class. You're going to have to have a money and banking class. You're going to have to have uh, some sort of investments class. An MBA, I mean, you could have a, a an undergrad or an MBA that's in marketing or management, which would have absolutely nothing to do with the business that we're in of helping people with their money. So it doesn't necessarily qualify somebody to work with you. But in your mind, it might disqualify someone from working with you if they haven't shown the ability to earn a meaningful degree that takes, you know, four years or maybe an extra two years in an MBA or an extra three years for a CFA or uh, an extra year and a half for a CFP or whatever those things are. But I think that's a base level for getting into this business and then the financial designations and the FINRA designations go on top of that base level of a, of understanding. That's sort of the, uh, the, the these other designations or tests that you can take in this additional education kind of becomes the the master's degree of the financial advisor industry in many ways. It sounds yeah, like yeah, the undergrad is kind of almost like the ante for getting into the game. Okay. Gotcha. Very interesting. All right. So with a basic understanding of some of this designation jargon now sort of in our hands a little bit, um, are there certifications that you think a financial planner should have to help someone successfully prepare for retirement? Like if if you were to be on the other side of the table as your clients now, is there because I've heard people say this before, like, I won't work with a financial advisor unless they at least are X, Y, Z. Um, unless they at least have their, you know, this test passed or this level of designation. Do, do you have that as an advisor? Like if you were if you were going to refer a loved one to go work with somebody in their local area, let's say, and, uh, you, you, and you were vetting advisors yourself, like what would be that bar for you? So for me, I would encourage a family member or, you know, a, a, a good friend to make sure that the person that they're working with does have some sort of professional designation. So whether that is, you know, three of the four that we kind of started off with, I think are are fantastic to have, either a CFA or a CFP or that Chartered Financial Consultant designation. To be in the business, they're going to have a securities license, which is good. Maybe they have a securities license and 20 years of experience 
Well, that would be perfectly fine too. What I wouldn't want, if I were going to hire a, this is going to sound age specific, since I'm over 60, maybe that's a bad thing to be. But if I were going to hire a younger advisor, I would want to make sure because they don't have gray hair, they haven't seen 10 or 20 years of, <laughs> of problems that come up in the mm -hmm. economy and the markets. I'd want to make sure that they absolutely had one of these serious designations to say, okay, they may not have the gray hair to go with it, but they have a significant amount of, of knowledge and understanding. And maybe I'll give up a little gray hair if they have one of these serious designations. So people are really different with their money. And so everybody gets to make their own chance as to make their own choice as to who, if at all, they trust with their money. I know a lot of people who say, you know what, I'm going to do this myself. And sometimes that works out great and sometimes not so much. I have also have a lot of other friends, acquaintances, and frankly, clients who say, no, I need some professional help. And so that's when I think you want to make sure that the person that you're working with isn't always calling in a subject matter expert, but actually is conversant in a lot of these topics themselves. And if the answer that, to your question is always, you know, let me check on that and get back with you, then perhaps you're working with someone who's just a little bit too green. That's a great way to look at it. Absolutely. It, it doesn't mean that you can't ever stump the advisor on some topic, but <laughs> like you said, if there's, if they're not able to converse with you or at least explore it with you a little bit and, uh, you know, have to go Google it themselves first, um, every time you come up with some sort of question, that's a great, uh, great piece of information to, uh, to kind of just let, you know, that, that's where your inner voice starts to speak to you a little bit. <laughs> Listen yes. to that voice. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, fantastic. Well, very good. Um, all you have to do if you want to talk to David a little bit more about, hey, these designations or what does this mean? All of that kind of stuff or just general questions about your financial life and planning. Pick up the phone. Give David a call. 913-317-1414 or go online to CoverYourAssetsKC.com or just check the description of our show today and you'll find more information there about getting in touch. David, really helpful. Thanks for walking through some of these designations with us and kind of parsing through some of this jargon. I don't expect our listeners to become experts on all of these different terms, but hopefully they'll be a little bit more familiar with it if they encounter it in their financial and retirement planning. Exactly. Just becoming a little bit conversant is, uh, it'll take you a long way in figuring out the type of professional that you want to work with. Perfect. Uh, thank you for guiding us through this today. We'll have another great episode on tap next time around. Until then, thanks everybody for listening. We'll see you next time on Cover Your Assets, Casey. Investment advisory services offered through ChangePath LLC, a registered investment advisor. ChangePath LLC and Casey Financial Advisors are separate companies.